Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is found on page 807 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Okay, for reading God's word for us this morning, and Merry Christmas to each of you. Uh, So glad that you are with us this morning, whether uh, you are here uh, physically with us in the room or if you're joining us online, we're also glad that you uh, are with us today in that way. And we, you know, we have people uh, who join us online from from Kansas City, certainly, but also from other places like Dallas. We even have people who've written in, said they're watching from Mexico. So wherever you're at this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, we're really glad you're here. Merry Christmas. Uh, Again, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And as we continue worshiping together and looking at this passage of Scripture that we just heard read, I'd like to pray over us, just acknowledging that we need the author of these words um, to speak afresh to us through them now. So let's do that. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the Scriptures, that they bear witness to the living Word, Jesus, And I pray now for me as I speak and for each of us together as we uh, listen to your word that the living word Jesus would be made real to us in new and fresh ways. And it's in his name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. I wonder if you've had a chance yet to watch any of your favorite Christmas movies. I don't know what those are for you. I don't know if you like the classics. You know, you got White Christmas and uh, it's a wonderful life. We just watched White Christmas for the first time with our kids the other day. And there's some long scenes. I forgot how long some of those dancing uh, musical scenes are in that movie, especially if you're a three-year-old. Um, but, you know, there's some the classics. Uh, or maybe you're more of a, a Christmas uh, vacation fan. I haven't gotten to watch that one this year, but that's always one of my favorites. Um, or Die Hard. You know, there's always the debate, is Die Hard actually a Christmas movie? I, I think it probably does fall into the category of a Christmas movie. It certainly takes place at Christmas time. But you can Google. There's a whole conversation online about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Um, And this year, though, uh, Disney remade the holiday staple Home Alone as Home Sweet Home Alone. I also have not watched that one yet. I I was actually excited to watch it because I just thought it looked like a fun update to the movie. And then I saw on Rotten Tomatoes it was getting like an 18% rating. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll wait till my kids can watch this with me because I don't know if I want to invest that time just by myself. Um, So we'll see. But in many ways, Right, Home Alone, that story, whether the original or the remake or or any of the sequels, like it's kind of every kid's dream. Like no rules, no screen time limits, no bedtime. And as a movie, like it is this fun story and it's heart 
heartwarming, it's a comedy. But in real life, like Home Alone is actually a horror movie. Like if, if, if a kid actually got left alone and there's criminals trying to break in and hurt them and there's spiders running around the house, I mean, this is, this is not, this is a horror movie. Because one of our greatest fears, especially as little kids, is being left behind, being left alone. I still have this vivid memory as a kid, probably five, four or five years old, of being in a Kmart. I don't know if Kmart still is around. I don't know of any Kmarts, but did Kmart back then. And I was in this Kmart, and it was kind of a, the clothing rack area, and we were looking for clothes, and I was with my mom. I don't know if my other siblings were with me or not, but it was kind of those densely packed clothing racks, and I remember turning around and not seeing my mom. Now, I was probably only like lost. I wasn't even really lost, but like lost for like two minutes, but it felt like forever. Like I just turned around. I could not find my mom, and I still can remember that, even the feeling in my body of that kind of sense of panic, even in that really early memory of thinking, I've been left alone. And wherever we're hiking as a family, whoever's going the slowest, you know, we got Graham, he's like three years old, and he's always like, wait, like, don't leave me behind. Wait up, don't leave me behind. Because we're afraid as kids of being left behind. And I think we've probably all had experiences like that as, as kids, of, of being lost or being left behind or being left out, not included in something. And that feeling of being alone. And even as adults, the fear of being alone is one of our deepest fears. And psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who's a really thoughtful follower of Jesus, has been with us here at Christ Community. He actually, in this room, from this platform, he did a training from our st- uh, for our staff back in October. And he said something that has really stuck with me. And he said, when we're thinking about this category of anxiety, which is like worry about the future, he says, when we ask people, okay, what are, you, what are you fearful of in the future? What's the source of your anxiety? People will often name events, like, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm worried about not having enough money to, to pay the bills, or I'm afraid of this health diagnosis that could come or has come, or I'm afraid of this, uh, you know, the loss of a loved one. Like they, he says, you, people typically, when you ask them what they're worried about, what they're anxious about, they're naming events that are going to happen. But typically, he says, we aren't actually truly deeply afraid of the event itself, but rather of the emotions that event will cause, the grief, the pain, the sorrow, the loss. And we're afraid of being overwhelmed by those emotions and being alone in them, being, uh, experiencing them kind of never-ending and having no one to be there with us in the midst of those emotions. And he makes the point that we as human beings, our brains are anticipation machines, meaning that what we have had as experiences, we anticipate that that's what we project will happen in the future. And this is the really profound point that he made there then, is he says what that fear tells us is that we already feel alone right now. That if we're afraid of being alone in the future, if we're anxious about these events happening, the, the overwhelm of those emotions, the fear of being alone in them, the fear of them not ending, what he says is that actually tells us that we feel alone at some level right now already. That we don't believe that there will be someone to be with us, to comfort us, to be near us in those moments of loss or sadness or overwhelm. That most of us probably feel more alone than we even realize which means that we can actually relate to Joseph in this passage that we heard read this morning. I mean, maybe not to his specific circumstance. I mean, he's got a pretty unique, specific circumstance that he's dealing with. 
but the emotions that he's feeling. And what we're going to discover this morning as we look at this passage together, Joseph's story, is that Christmas holds the answer to one of the deepest questions of our lives, which is how can I know that God won't leave me? How can I know that God won't leave me? Because I would guess that Joseph had never felt more alone in his life than the day that Mary told him. The day that Mary told him she was pregnant. The day that he came to the conclusion that we read about in verse 19. And the story opens in verse 18 like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, I'll say more about that in just a moment, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And just imagine Joseph and Mary, they're young. I mean, Mary's probably even a, a few, quite a few years younger than Joseph, likely. But they're, they're, they are committed to one another. Their families have been looking forward to eager expectation to the day when this kind of legal commitment of, of betrothal would be brought to its fulfillment in marriage. So they were not yet married, but they were in kind of this binding legal relationship commitment stronger than an engagement that they are going to get married. And their families have been planning for this. They've been saving their whole lives, the money, and planning for this event that's coming up that they're going to finally, they're going to come together as husband and wife, and they'll live together in this house that they've been preparing and all this is going to, all these hopes and dreams and expectations are finally going to be fulfilled. This is such a season of excitement and then it all starts to unravel because an angel visits Mary. Again, people in first century Palestine area, they weren't getting lots of visions from angels and visits from angels. Sometimes we think, I, we read the Bible and it's like, oh, this kind of stuff's happened all, all for every day. No, no, this is incredibly rare. Mary, Mary gets this visit from an angel. And, and this angel says that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her, that she's going to become pregnant. And I, I wonder how long it took for her to tell Joseph that news. I, I, just, the Bible doesn't tell, I always have these questions about these narratives. You start reading, like, I wonder, did she tell him right away, like, hey, Joseph, I had this incredible vision, this angel visited me, like, or did she, like, just hold that for a while? Like, is this actually going to come true? I, I think this is true. How do I even begin to tell Joseph? I, I don't know. Did he tell her that same, did they talk that same day? Was it a week? Was it only when she, like, obviously became pregnant that she's like, well, I guess I, I, this, this is really happening. I need to tell Joseph. I don't know. But at some point, it became obvious to her, to Joseph, to everybody else, she is pregnant. And, and Joseph knew whether anyone else thought or believed him that he was not the father, even though he was like, you know, he's kind of the likely suspect here. But he knew he wasn't the father. But who would believe him, right? Who could believe that a miracle had happened? Could he even believe it? Like, I wonder if he wrestled with is Mary telling the truth? Did this really happen? Can I trust her? Because even if Joseph could believe that this moment with Mary was this kind of one-off exception, who else would believe? Because again, people 2,000 years ago, they didn't have access to sonograms or cell biology or microscopes, but like they knew how, they knew how you got pregnant. That was not a mystery to them. They, they knew how that worked. And Mary is essentially asking people to believe that a one-off thing has happened that's not 
ever happened in history and wouldn't happen again. It's happened to me. And Joseph's not actually the father. And in a culture of honor and shame where loyalty to your family was everything, how could Joseph possibly bring shame on his family by continuing to stay with Mary? In fact, as a just man, that's how Matthew describes him here, as a just man, the expectation would be that he would break this off. That was what he ought to do. It was the right thing to do if he was going to be a right, good, just, loyal son is he had to break off this relationship. No matter what he believed about Mary's story and how utterly alone he must have felt in those moments of wrestling with what to do. Because even, I think about this, like who could he even talk to about this? Because even in the act of going to someone and saying, hey, look, let me tell you this story, like he's bringing more shame on him and, and Mary by just explaining what's happened and that she is pregnant and what should he do? He had to feel so alone. But being a just man, he came to the conclusion that he had to do what was right, what was the cultural expectation, what was the cultural expectation of him being a good son, a good man, and he decided he only had one choice, to, to break off the betrothal, to end the relationship, but he was going to do it quietly. He wasn't going to denounce Mary, he wasn't going to shame her, he wasn't going to go through the, she, the streets and, and, you know, sort of shout about her. He was just going to quietly end the relationship Hope that they could both move on, even though no one would ever forget what had happened. At least maybe they could try to find a way forward. Again, how utterly alone Joseph must have felt that night that he finally made the decision. I don't have any choice. I've got to end it. I've got to end it. And when sleep finally came that night, as he was considering these things, something happened. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In the midst of that utter loneliness, a messenger from God broke through and confirmed the truth of Mary's story to Joseph. And if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking that would have been great if he would have done like that the same day that Mary would have heard, if he would have sent an angel to me, or maybe we could have been together. When that happened, that would have been nice to, to know together. I don't know. Like, I wondered that this week. Why did God choose to let all of that go on, to let Joseph get to the point of, of considering, making the decision, deciding to break things off with Mary before he intervened? And I don't have an answer to that question. I just think it's, it's interesting how God's timing sometimes works. He told Mary at this stage, and he chose not to let Joseph in on it until here, at least not in a direct way. I don't know what goals that he was accomplishing in Joseph's life, but there was a reason that he waited until this moment. And he confirms, though, that Joseph, this story that Mary has told you, that I'm sure Joseph wanted with all of his heart to believe, but what a hard story to believe. It is actually true. But more than just confirm that the story was true, the angel communicated a promise, a promise that went to the heart of Joseph's aloneness. Verse 21, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And then the gospel writer, Matthew, who's recording these events for us, Matthew is one of these 12 unique followers of Jesus that Jesus selected and, you know, kind of appointed them this, this special role to be the, the, the ones who recorded and, and kept this tradition and the stories about him and, and were leaders of the early church. Matthew is one of those people that he called. He was he used to be a tax collector and, and Jesus has entrusted him with this. And years later, he's writing this down. And, and this is what Matthew writes for us as he's reflecting on these events years later. As he's recording all this for future generations, including us, you and me, he adds this comment to his readers. Verse 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. What Mary and Joseph were experiencing in the midst of all of their utterly life-altering experience, Matthew calls God with them. I was struck this week, too, that sometimes when God shows up in our lives, it kind of wrecks everything. I'm sure that when Mary and Joseph, as good Jewish boys and girls, when they went to synagogue and they heard the Isaiah scroll read and they heard that promise of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a promise from the the book of Isaiah, this Old Testament scroll. I'm, I'm sure that they thought, that's great. I don't think that they imagined it looking like this in their lives. I think sometimes we expect that God is going to answer our prayers and show up in our lives in the ways that we expect him to. And often when he shows up and does his best work, it's in ways that we would not have asked for or chosen. And yet he comes. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, Christmas means for you, for me, that Jesus will never leave us. Christmas means that Jesus will never leave us alone. And that's what I want us to take away from this passage this morning. That's what I want us to carry into this week of celebrating Christmas. That Jesus will never leave us alone. Because Jesus is God become human, Emmanuel. Pastor Tim Keller, in his wonderful little book called Hidden Christmas, he writes this. He says, there are three ideas in Emmanuel. He is God, he is human, and he is with us. Now, it would have been astonishing enough if the Son of God had become human temporarily, lived among us, and left, leaving a set of teachings, but his designs were infinitely greater than that. In Jesus, the ineffable and unapproachable God becomes a human being who can be known and loved. And through faith, Keller adds, we can know this love. In Jesus, we can know that we are not alone. We can have confidence that he will never leave us. And I want to show us this morning three reasons that we can know that Jesus will never leave us alone. Three reasons Jesus will never leave us alone. The first is this, that we can know Jesus will never leave us alone because he is God. This is the, the claim that the New Testament writers, the, the, those who are with Jesus, who are bearing witness to Jesus' life, communicate that he's God. And that God's purpose from the very beginning, when you read the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end, it's so clear that God's purpose from the very beginning is to dwell with his people, to live with them. In the opening pages of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates a world 
He creates humans to live in that world. He makes them in his image to be rulers with him. He gives them this unique work, this calling, this vocation. But he doesn't then just disappear and leave them alone to do it. No, he dwells with them in the garden. One of the biggest themes in the Bible is this idea of temples. And a temple is a place where heaven and earth overlap, where God and his people meet together. And the Garden of Eden, this place that God creates and places the man and the woman, is the first temple, the place where God walks with them, where he dwells with them. This has always been the goal, God with his people. And the greatest comfort that God can give and the greatest hope that he can give and does give to his people is his presence. Because Jesus is God, he can calm our fears. Notice the angel's message to Joseph in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. The human that Mary is carrying in her body is God with you, Joseph. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This echoes the the great words of comfort that God gives to his people through the prophet Isaiah. These are some of the most powerful words of Scripture. Promises to God's people. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah is communicating those words to people who have lost everything who have gone into exile, who have seen a foreign empire destroy their homes, killed their loved ones, and Isaiah gives them the comfort of do not fear because it's going to all be good again. You're going to get your house back. You're going to get your family. Don't, be, don't fear because I'm with you. God's presence is the greatest comfort, the greatest hope he can offer to people. I am with you. You don't have to be afraid. You're not alone. We can know that Jesus will never leave us alone because he is God, and God has been committed from the very moment of creation to being with his people. It's who he is. He wants to be with you. The God of the universe wants to be with you. He made you to know him. And you can know and experience him through faith. And like Joseph, that experience of his presence and nearness often comes, not always, to be clear, but often comes in the darkest and most fear-filled moments of our lives. And as a pastor, I can't tell you how many people tell me that where they experience God the most is in the moments of their greatest sorrow, sadness, pain, loss, despair, because those things, not because they in themselves are good or desirable, but because when they had nowhere else to turn, when they had no other distractions that could numb the pain, they experienced the one who was with them, who's always been with them. And he showed up. So we can know that Jesus will never leave us alone because he is God. That's, That's the first reason. The second is this. We can know that Jesus will never leave us alone because he is a human, because he is human. And this is the truly stunning truth of this passage. It's not just that God is with us as God. I mean, that would be incredible enough as it is. But that he is with us as a human. That the infinite creator became a creature. That he wrote himself into the story. 
And C.S. Lewis uses this as, as an illustration uh, in a number of different places, but one of the places after the Russians had sent cosmonauts into space for the first time, and there's this, this story that they said, well, you know, we're up here in the heavens and we didn't see God, you know. And Lewis is kind of writing an essay responding to that and, and basically says, but this is still part of his creation. Like looking for God in the story would be like Hamlet looking for Shakespeare inside the play. Like Shakespeare stands outside of that world. He created that world. But the good news of Christmas is that God wrote himself into the story, that the creator became the creature into that story. So to kind of update that a little bit from Shakespeare, it's like imagine you know, Luke Skywalker is not going to find George Lucas in a galaxy long ago far, far away. Like, as much as he looks, like, Luke Skywalker, like, he cannot find George Lucas because Lucas created that world. But what if George Lucas decided to write himself into that story? Like, what if Grogu, the child, was actually George Lucas coming into the story? Far-fetched, I know. Maybe you could start, a, like, a fan theory out there that that's what's happening. I don't know if anyone would buy it. And, and I know that's a silly example, but essentially, that is what the New Testament writers are saying what is happening, that the God who created the world in which we live is writing himself into the story as a creature. The creator is coming into this as a creature forever. That Jesus is the creator God. The God of Israel, Yahweh, took on human flesh and came to live with us as one of us. Not as an angel, not as a phantom, not as a spirit, but as a human being who lived the, the whole scope of human existence. He didn't just sort of adopt a body, like pick one off the rack, but who, from the moment of conception all the way through his death on the cross, like lives this truly human life. Dr. Betsy Barber, who teaches spiritual formation and psychology at the Talbot School of Theology in California, wrote this um, recently in an Advent devotional that Biola University puts out. It's a wonderful resource, and she, she wrote this earlier in Advent. She said, when God became man in order to rescue us, he put aside the glory of deity, he joined his gritty, dirty creations, and became a powerless fetus within a teenage woman's uterus, dependent on her breath and blood and placenta for his sustenance and growth. How shocking, how wonderful. God became abased. Humanity became exalted. We are all elevated and blessed through Mary. God's history with humans is a history of temple making. We've noted that already this morning. We are the residents of our very maker. Mary matters because she was his flesh and blood receptacle. What she did with her body mattered. And friends, if you're here this morning and, and you have ever wondered, do I matter? Does my, is my life worth living? Do I make any difference? Am I worthy of love, of care, affection? Do I matter? The coming of Jesus as a human being. Born of a human mother, Mary speaks boldly and forever to us, you matter. You matter so much that Jesus became like you. He became like you. 
And he will never leave you alone because he understands what it is to be you. And, and get this, Jesus didn't put on a human suit, like as a baby, and then like he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter one, and he kind of hangs the suit up on the rack and is like, okay, God, I got that. I can kind of stretch out a little bit. No. In God's face, in the heavens now, which is not just up, though that's how we kind of geographically represent it in the biblical imagination, but in God's space, which overlaps with our space. And will one day be, those two spaces will become one, but in God's space, in the heavens now, Jesus has a body. There is a flesh and blood heart beating that forever humanity was swept up into the life of the triune God and will remain there for all time and eternity. But by the mystery of faith, we can be united to Jesus and one day our faith will be sight, and we will see him. Notice the New Testament is so clear about this. We will see him not spirit to spirit. We won't have a sense of him in the room, but we will see him face to face. Face to face. Physical human face to physical human face. Jesus will never leave you alone because he is God. Jesus will never leave you alone because he is human. In fact, he's the only human who will always keep his promises, who will never let you down, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. And finally, we can know that Jesus will never leave us alone because he came to forgive us. And this is key, because did you notice what the angel told Joseph to name the child that Mary was carrying in her body? Look at verse 21 again. It says, You shall call his name Jesus... Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus was, was the kind of the, well, it's now the, the English translation, but it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word, the name Joshua. So when you read your Old Testament, and you come across the name Joshua, this is the, it's the same name, Jesus, it's just in, in, in Greek. Name him Joshua. And the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh is deliverance. Yahweh is rescue. God saves. Wrapped up in his, and this was a common name. Joshua was a common name. Jesus wasn't like the only kid who was ever named Jesus at this time. There's lots of Jesus, Joshua's out there. But his name speaks of the calling that he had, the unique thing he was going to do. Yahweh is salvation. Not only was his name a declaration of that truth, but he was that salvation embodied. He was Yahweh saving his people. Emmanuel, God with us, come to rescue us from our sins. And now we hear the word sin. I think whether we're Christians or not, or whether we've grown up in church or not, I think that often tends to connote in our minds like breaking rules, right? So sin is, is breaking a rule, breaking a, a, a law somewhere. So even think of like the Ten Commandments, and that's not a, a wrong way to think about sin, but it's like I, I've lied, I've stolen, I, that, that, that means I've sinned, I've broken this rule. But in a much more fundamental, foundational kind of level, sin is about a rejection of God. It's not just about breaking sort of an arbitrary rule, but it's about a rejection of a person. Now, the statement that we've been repeating in the message this morning is Christmas means that Jesus will never leave you alone. And I've been saying that like it's good news. Like, Jesus will never leave you alone. This is good news. I've been saying that like it's good news because it is good news. But it's only good news 
if you want to be with Jesus. And I guess that there is part of each one of us, myself included, that it is at least a little unsettled, if not maybe downright repulsed by the idea of Jesus never leaving me alone. Of, of sort of always being there, always interfering with us, never giving us space. And few have articulated this more poignantly than C.S. Lewis in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he's just describing his journey from atheism to Christianity. In that book, he articulates this repulsion at the idea of God never leaving him alone. He writes this, he says, but of course what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what seemed to me to be a transcendental interfere. And if its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's own soul, nay, there least of all, which could be surrounded with a barbed wire fence and guarded with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine alone. That, that is the heart of what Christianity and Christians mean when they talk about sin. It's what happens with Adam and Eve in the garden when they eat the fruit. They choose in that moment to be independent of God, to say, we're going to define good and bad on our own apart from you, God. And they are essentially saying in that moment, God, leave me alone forever. I don't want your wisdom. I don't want your interference. Leave me alone forever. And the just thing for God to do would have been to give them exactly what they wanted and chose, to be alone, apart from him, forever. That's quite literally the, the definition of hell, isolation forever apart from anyone else and from God. But you know what? God didn't. He didn't leave them alone. Even in the Genesis story, in Genesis chapter 3, he comes to find them. He comes looking for them, even though they have said, we do not want you, leave us alone. He comes looking for them, asking, where are you? I want to be with you. Where are you? He comes looking for them, but they hid, if you know that story. They hide themselves. And so do we. As friends, we are home alone not because God left us, but because we've left him. Right, in the Home Alone movie story, right, like we're not ultimately the kid who gets left behind, whose parents forgot about him. We are the distracted, self-absorbed parents who forgot about what is most important. But the birth of Jesus God become human is the ultimate testimony to God's commitment to come and find us, even when, especially when, we don't want him. Because he came to, to save us from our sin, from that part of us, and there is part of us, that in every one of us, that doesn't want him. Because he knows that we cannot be happy without him. 
And Jesus came to find us, and on the cross, he experienced the ultimate aloneness so that we would never be alone. Friends, one of the greatest ploys of the evil one is to convince us that we are alone. To convince us that God will leave us alone. But don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie this Christmas because you are never, ever alone. Christmas means that Jesus will never leave you alone. In 1941, during the heart of World War II, Winston Churchill gave a speech at Harrow School, which was the the boys' boarding school that he attended. And during that speech, he spoke the now incredibly famous lines, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty. And those lines have been an inspiration and encouragement to so many, including me. And, and those words are incredibly good advice that we should take and apply to, to never give in, to, to keep pushing forward. However, the good news of Christmas could be stated this way, never alone, never alone, never, never, never in nothing great or small, large or petty am I ever alone. Christmas means that now and forever we are never alone alone. And that is good news. Christmas means that Jesus will never leave us alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, to whatever extent we find ourselves desiring you or not desiring you, wanting to be near you or wanting nothing to do with you, would we hear you afresh asking, where are you? I've come to be with you. Stop hiding. Come to me. You are not alone. That even in the moments where we have felt the most alone, that you are there. And even in the moments that we are most afraid of in the future, you will be there. Deepen our sense of that this morning. Not just as, a, as an idea that we believe, but a truth that we embody as a people together. It's in the name of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.